The New Testament text is Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 45. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all, the, all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. You might be familiar with the statement, knowledge is power. It's attributed to Francis Bacon. Uh, Francis Bacon, of course, is a person that we sometimes attribute the scientific re revolution to, someone who helped to get the sort of scientific enterprise underway. Um, but sometimes uh, there are things that really you ought to keep to yourself. In other words, they're not uh, for public uh, sort of uh, dissemination or, or to be made public. Um, there's a phenomenon that's occurred in our society. Uh, it's uh, the problem of having your identity stolen. I had my identity stolen about this time last year, and in about two days, someone took my identity and and uh, acquired about $150,000 of debt. I uh, fortunately was notified by a banker who suspected that this was what was occurring, and so, uh, and we live in a world today where this kind of thing is a lot easier to address than just a few years ago. So within a couple of weeks, it was all cleared up. I was off the hook when it came to the debt, but unfortunately, the uh, car dealerships that the guy had uh, used my identity to secure some cars from, very expensive cars, by the way. Well, I think it was one that's like $90,000 and the other was like $85,000. Kind of in those ball, that ballpark uh, for both of those uh, acquisitions. That the, the car dealerships were out of the money. Um, and so there was a person that was on the lam at that point, and I don't know whatever became of that guy. They ever caught him, but anyway, that's the end of the story as far as I'm concerned. But if you want to know my uh, personal information when it comes to like important things like my social security number, like my bank account, no, you may not know. Even though I like you, I'm not going to tell you those things because knowledge uh, is power. And sometimes in a fallen world, when certain pieces of information fall into the wrong hands, um, it can really hurt you. In fact, if you, thought it, if you think about it, you think about Miranda rights. This is a fascinating thing. Even our government uh, is limited in respect to what it can require of you when it comes to what you, know, you tell it. 
You, you've seen, of course, the, you know, all the cop shows, right? The Miranda rights, right? You have a, a right to remain silent. What you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, and you have a right to a lawyer. Isn't that fascinating, though, that you're told right up front, you don't have to talk, you don't have to say anything, you can keep it all to yourself, because knowledge is power, and maybe because of your naivete, you would convey some information that might harm you and uh, be used against you, even though you may be innocent. In other words, things can go awry. There's this marvelous episode in Lord of the Rings. I don't know if, you, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll enjoy this illustration. If you're not, just put up with it. But anyway, so in, that, in the Lord of the Rings, you know, we've got a couple of naive hobbits, Merry and Pippin. They are about... They're, they're about as naive as you can, be, you can be. They're the embodiment of sort of good-hearted, sort of Forrest Gump naivete. And they find themselves in Fangorn, this old forest, and they're uh, caught by a, 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 an ant by the name of Treebeard. Now, the good thing is Treebeard is a good-hearted ant. And in the course of conversation, they're, you know, introducing themselves to each other. And uh, Treebeard, in the course of the conversation, is kind of taken with the fact that these hobbits just don't hold back. They just tell him anything and everything about themselves. And he says to them at one point, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really quite taken with your trust in me, but be careful now. If you, if you don't watch out, you'll be telling me your real names in a moment. And they say, well, we're not careful about that. My name's Pippin and this is Mary. And he's like, oh, you are hasty folk, hasty folk. Some things really are not for public consumption or public knowledge uh, because we live in a fallen world. By the way, re revelation, the word to reveal, implies that there are some things that aren't known sort of broadly. A revelation is an unveiling of something that had been hidden. There's a kind of mystery that uh, is... Uh, disclosed through a revelation. All of these things are important to keep in mind because we're going to be talking about Christ in hiding. Why? Why? Well, first of all, this particular passage begins with Christ uh, not being where people expected him to be. He's out in a desolate place. And uh, the disciples have a hard time finding him. And when they find him, what do they say? Everyone is looking for you. And he doesn't even apologize. He doesn't even sort of give an explanation for as to why he was difficult to locate. Uh, he just says in response, we're going somewhere else, guys, because that's why I've come, is to not just stay in one place, but to go to these other towns as well. Now, what this implies, of course, is that Christ's agenda and the agenda of the disciples wasn't necessarily the same agenda. There was something that the Lord was up to that he hadn't fully disclosed to them yet. And what he was interested in doing was sort of carrying out his father's agenda. And in order to do that, he had to check in with his father and get some insight, some sense of what that agenda was on an ongoing basis. And we really should follow his example. Um, and it means... I think in some significant way that we also need to go to a desolate place. Um, we can, can be caught up in mundane affairs, things that just sort of uh, 
press out of our lives uh, things of greater importance. There's a marvelous book by a fellow named Charles Hummel entitled The Tyranny of the Urgent. Are you familiar, folks familiar with that little booklet, The Tyranny of the Urgent? Essentially, the, the message of the book is this. Urgent things are always clamoring for your attention. And in the course of daily life, they have a way of pressing out the most important things. There's always something that needs you right now, immediately to attend to. And if you just give yourself over to that, well, you're not going to have time for prayer. You're not going to have time to spend with your family. You're not going to have time to spend with your wife or your husband. There's always something to do. Have you noticed this? There's always something to Nature abhors a vacuum. And if the world sees you sitting around uh, insufficiently busy, the world will find things for you to do. Remember the episode with Mary and Martha? So there we have Mary and Martha. You, you know, they're, 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 you could say personifications of these two realities. So, you know, the Lord Jesus and his disciples come over for, you know, dinner. And, you know, Martha is a Martha, and she wants everybody to be happy, and she's very busy making sure everybody is happy. And she's kind of put out by her sister Mary, who just doesn't seem to be, you know, kind of, you know, in the, you know sort of on the same page with her. In fact, Mary is not in the kitchen. She's out in the living room, and she's hanging out with the guys, and she's listening to Jesus, and she's enjoying what he has to say. She's learning. She's made some space in her life for something important. Martha, of course, is just put out by this, and she comes out to the Lord and says, Don't you care? Don't you understand? I'm doing this for you and all these people that you bring around with you. There we go. I need Mary in the kitchen with me to help. And what does the Lord say? Does the Lord say, ah, oh, Martha, that's so important. You're absolutely right. What are you thinking, Mary? Get in there. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell those disciples, let's get in there and help too. No, what he says to Martha is, Mary has chosen the better thing. And I'm not going to take it from her. Implying, why don't you sit down, Martha? You can enjoy what I'm having to talk about as well. Now, this is not to say the Marthas of the world are bad. I love Marthas. I think Marthas are great. Martha's get things done. But the problem is, you can see, is if that's the only sort of example that you have, if Martha is the end of the story, then many important things get pressed out of your life. The mundane, the, the word mun, mundane, that's an interesting word. It means worldly. Just the stuff of daily life will press out of your life the important things that you need to attend to. And one of those things, is setting aside special times to be in the Lord's presence, to pray. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's a reference that uh, probably, you know, you've read a million times and have just sort of skimmed over, but it's a reference to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who is in secret. Your Father who is in secret? What is that supposed to refer to? Well, it's in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Lord is referring to giving gifts to people, you know, helping the poor. He's talking about fasting. He's talking about prayer. And he's saying, you know, don't advertise, you know, your, you know, your, your work in these areas. Just, just do it. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. There's a kind of secrecy that uh, we are to... Uh, practice in the course of the Christian life. Secrecy, in other words, doesn't always mean you've done something wrong. It can actually mean you're trying to do something right. 
Your Father who is in secret will reward you. We're told to go into the closet and pray there, not out in public to impress all the neighbors, but to pray and to direct our attention to the one who sees us and the only one who can see us in secret. There's an interesting uh, thing to keep in mind. We have to set apart some time for this kind of thing. We have to sanctify some time, sanctify some space. The word sanctify literally means just this, set apart. Set some time apart. Set a place apart. The word profane, you know, when you hear the word profane, you think what? Profanity. But literally, etymologically, it simply means outside the temple. In other words, there's behavior that's appropriate when you're in the presence of God. And then there's a behavior that is never appropriate, even when you're outside the temple. <laughs> but you get the drift. There is a, a kind of profane and sacred distinction. And we, as Christians, need to, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. That's actually the most secret place of all. That's the place where we're to invest ourselves in communing with our Savior and our God and where we're to check in on an ongoing basis for the agenda. What's the agenda? What's the agenda? What should we be doing? We should be getting into the Word. We should be getting into prayer. We should be doing these things to check in to make sure we're on point, that we're on the same page, so to speak, with the one who set the agenda. So I, that's one way to think about the role of secrecy in the Christian life. We are to have good secrets. The prayers that we pray in secret, the fasting that we perform in secret, the giving we do in secret, it's just between us and the Lord. It's not public information. Now, the subject of secrecy in the Bible is a fascinating one. There are a lot of places you can go and learn a lot of things about that subject. Um, and in the, you know, the course of the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, as I noted, there's something that many scholars have referred to as the messianic secret. And we see it, uh, see evidence for it right here. When the Lord heals the leper, what does he say to the guy? Don't tell anybody. And that's not the last time. Uh, we see it again in chapter 3, verse 12, don't tell anybody. We see it once more in chapter 8, verse 30, don't tell anybody. What's this all about? Well, I want you to know I don't have the authoritative and final interpretation to share with you. Aren't you glad? <laughs> I'm going to just leave that with you to think about. But there are some things that I think we can say about secrecy in the Bible that uh, are more, I think, uh, on the surface and easy to uh, assess. One of those things is sometimes God hides stuff in our blind spot. Have you ever thought about your blind spot? Like when you go to get your you know, eyes checked at the doctor and they'll try to identify where the blind spot is and you suddenly there's this thing that they're sort of waving in front of you and it disappears and you, you raise your hand, that's it. Now, oh, there's your blind spot, that's the part of the sort of peripheral vision that uh, doesn't pick up in that particular uh, location. Now, one of the things that we can say for the blind spot is sometimes we actually willfully have a blind spot. Um, there was a book I read a number of years ago entitled People of the Lie by a fellow named 
M. Scott Peck. He was the author of The Road Less Traveled, which was a huge bestseller, was on the New York Times bestseller list for like years. And then he followed that up with a book entitled People of the Lie. Now, The Road Less Traveled, and by the way, I'm not trying to endorse him and everything he said. He was just an interesting guy. But in The Road Less Traveled, he began uh, uh, writing that book as a Buddhist, and by the time he was done, he was a Christian. Kind of a fascinating story. You can read about how that occurred. He was a Harvard-educated psychiatrist. And uh, the reason he converted is because he read the Gospels. He said, okay, I'm writing a book about love, the road less traveled. I better read the Gospels. And by the time he was done reading the Gospels, he was a Christian. Then he decided that he would uh, tackle a much more sort of controversial and difficult subject, and the subject was evil. And that's what the book People of the Lie is about. And what he said uh, in that book when it came to his definition of evil is this. Evil is militant ignorance. Evil is militant ignorance. It's not just ignorance. It's a militant sort of disposition to not want to know. You don't want to know. Now, there's a paradox to this because what you don't want to know, you already do know. Let me give you a sense of what I mean. You think about Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. There we see the Apostle Paul tell us that there are things that we can know, but we don't want to know. And one of the things that we can know is that there is a Creator to whom we owe reverence and thanks, but we, since we don't want to give reverence and thanks to the Creator, we suppress the truth. The wickedness that's present in our lives and prevalent in our lives is a kind of expression of that desire not to know, militant ignorance. We see it also referred to in 1 John, when 1 John talks about deceiving yourself. Remember that in uh, the first chapter, verses 5 through 10, there the Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. How do you deceive yourself? Ever thought about that? I'm going to play a trick on myself. I'm going to tell myself a lie, and I'm going to believe it. That's deceiving yourself. But what does that imply? It implies you know, but you don't want to know. You're telling yourself a lie because you're trying to suppress what you know to be the case. And in that case, it's the knowledge of your sin. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. You're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. Related to this, though, uh, is the fact that sometimes God does hide things for his own good reasons. And we're told that uh, in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. That's one of the reasons why I had that, that proverb read. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. In other words, God doesn't let us in on everything. And one reason, perhaps, is because we can't be trusted <laughs> with the information. That's just me kind of knowing myself and speculating as to why God operates the way he does. But think about the book of Job. Have you thought about the book of Job? One of the things about the book of Job is, 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 is that it puts to, puts to rest this idea that, 
that believers in God are not really dealing with the reality of evil in the world. I mean, if there's anything that you can point to in the Bible that you can say to a, an atheist, hey, we're not naive about the reality of evil in the world. Just, you know, here we have the book of Job. But at the end of the book of Job, when the Lord, there's this theophany and the Lord presents himself to Job and his comforters, does the Lord give an explanation? No. Basically, what Job gets is, who are you? Where were you? It's not for you to know, is the implication. And Job, righteous Job, is willing to accept that. There are things that God knows, and he doesn't disclose those things to us. Nevertheless, the Lord does commend those who search things out. We're told in the second part of that proverb that it is the glory of kings, the glory of kings, to search matters out. In other words, when we delve into things and seek to understand things, things that God is willing for us to understand and know, that there's something about that that demonstrates our character. It's the glory of kings. We're not talking about the glory of cobblers or coopers or, you know, people who are, you know, plowing the field. We're talking about the glory of what? Kings. There's something that demonstrates a kind of royal sort of disposition. When a person is genuinely interested in knowing the truth and seeks it out. And we're promised in Jeremiah and other places that uh, we can know things if we seek with the whole heart. Now, the most important one to seek, not a thing, but a person, is God himself. And we're promised there in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me on this condition, when you seek me with all your heart. Give yourself over to the task completely. Now, there are other things that um, I think demonstrate that uh, through uh, God's hiding something important that he knows about and we don't, there's uh, a kind of uh, depraved character revealed in us because of our ignorance. I'm thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, this is not the entire uh, passage of the, uh, that's contained in those two verses, but let me just read it to you, and I think you'll see what I mean. Here the Apostle Paul says, For we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God. Then he goes on to say, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's a sense in which, because the glory of Christ was in some way concealed and they couldn't perceive it, their own wickedness was brought to the surface and revealed through their actions. Sometimes the Lord keeps things under wraps in order to bring to the surface something about us. So something was revealed, their own wickedness, but that wickedness itself furthered his purposes. Wheels within wheels, 
this is not a simple matter, and this is not an easy sermon to preach. What we're dealing with here is the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God, in some ways, is made plain to us, but in other ways remains opaque. Nevertheless, we're called to trust the Lord and to call out to Him and to seek Him. When we think about mysteries, one of the things I, I've noted before as we've talked about the subject of mystery is that today in our world, when we think about a mystery, we think of what? Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie or something like that. A mystery for a modern person is something that's easy to clear up. It's a question. It's a puzzle. And then when you get the answer, it's all cleared up. When you, when you know what the answer is or you've solved the puzzle, there's no more mystery. That's not really the way uh, I think uh, we should understand the nature of mystery as we see it in Scripture. Mystery, uh, understood scripturally, is a truth that is hidden from view, that is present, but can't be seen. So when we think about the mystery of godliness, or we think about the mystery that we have expressed through the union of a husband and wife in matrimony, we see things that are, are there but are not necessarily on the surface, but require discernment and some sense of insight into God's purposes. They are, in an ongoing way, mysteries. By the way, we're going to uh, celebrate a mystery when we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The word sacrament is kind of a Latinization of the Greek word mysterion. So in the scriptures, when baptism or the Lord's Supper is referred to as, as mysteries, that's what is being conveyed. There's something real going on beneath the surface, something real that's only spiritually discerned. Now, one of the things that I think we'd all like to know is uh, when it comes to things that are going on in our lives that are challenging, even physically distressing, like leprosy, is, is it God's will to heal me? Now, the best way to know is to ask. <laughs> and that's what we have here in this episode with this leper. When it comes to whether or not God will heal us, the way to know is to ask. We're told in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you have not because you ask not. Now, we're also told there, the reason why he doesn't answer your prayers is because you're going to use the answer in a way that is not God-honoring. That's the reason why, even if you did ask, you're not going to get what you ask for. But let's just put it sort of on the surface there. You have not because you ask not. One of the things that's really been a marvelous sort of process of, I guess the best way to use is discovery over the course of my Christian life, is just how significant prayer is. Now, you might say, well, didn't you go to seminary? Didn't you get like a lot of instruction on the subject of prayer? I mean, don't you know how to pray? You know, you know what, what, what was up with you guy? Well, I'll tell you, as a young man, I was you know, really taken with the study of scripture and the study of theology and the study of philosophy. And my initial sort of impulse whenever it came to spiritual things was study. Study's great, don't get me wrong. I want you to study your Bibles. I want you to read good books, okay? Make sure that that, you know, is clear in your minds. That's what I want for you. But when it comes to really seeing things change, 
in your life and in the lives of other people around you, prayer is where you need to go. Prayer. You know, I think sometimes we in the Reformed world, because of our, you know, scholarly and cerebral approach to the faith, we've got a lot of great things to say. I mean, everybody reads our books. Baptists read our books. Pentecostals read our books. Even Catholics read our books. Everybody reads our books. But no one ever says, you know what? I need to get a Reformed guy to pray for me. Why not? Because that's not what we're known for. Wouldn't it be great if we were known for both? You know where they go, don't you? You know where they go, the Pentecostals. They go to the Pentecostals, because the Pentecostals, that's their first mode. That's their first sort of you know, option, pray. Now, they'll pray crazy stuff, but at least they pray. Wouldn't it be great if we can actually pray for the right stuff, for the good stuff? Because I, I want you to know it makes a difference. It really does. I've had so many marvelous answers to prayer over the course of my life. I've got no excuse. You would think, you know, like it'd be like Pavlov's dog. You know, you know, you ring a bell, begin to salivate, need, pray. I have to remind myself to pray all the time. I'm like always like scolding myself. Why didn't you pray about this earlier? That kind of thing. We need to go to prayer. And when we pray, God reveals his will for us through the answers to prayer. Sometimes the answer is what? No. There's some other purpose that's being served. The Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane got a no. You remember the prayer, right? If there's some way I can get out of this, you know, get me out of this. No. So sometimes it's no. But many times it's yes. But we have to ask. You have not because you ask not. Get in the habit of asking. You know, pray without ceasing. What's pray without ceasing mean? Does it mean like you just spend all your time with your eyes closed, walking around in, bumping into things? No, it just means that as you go through the course of your life, when things come up and needs are, are, are you know, right there in front of you, your first thought is prayer. And it doesn't have to be elaborate. doesn't have to be wordy. doesn't have to be beautiful. Just, Lord, help that person. And you don't even need to say it out loud. Just get into the habit of doing it, praying as you go. And in this situation, what happens? We have a prayer. That's really what this leper is doing. Prayer just is, when you look at the origin of the word uh, in the Greek, it just means to send a wish in a particular direction. That's all it means. And so here we have this leper. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And the Lord is moved with pity and says, I will make you clean. And he does. He does. Now, the man was as good as dead. I don't think we have an appreciation for what real leprosy is like. We live in a country where we just don't see it. But in antiquity, you couldn't miss it. And there's a deadening of the nerves deadening the flesh and literally the person is like a walking dying person you can see it they're decaying right in front of you that's what leprosy is like and we're told in Leviticus chapter 13 the chapter preceding the passage that we read about the cleansing of the leper uh, what you're supposed to do when you discover you're a leper you're to remove yourself from the community you're to go outside the camp you're ostracized 
and you warn everybody wherever you go that you're a leper so they don't get too close. So in other words, you're as good as dead and you're kind of left for dead outside the gate. That's where you find yourself when you're a leper. But here in this passage, we see that the Lord goes to what? Desolate places outside the gate. And the Lord, we're told in Hebrews chapter 13, died outside the gate for the sins of the people. The Lord went outside the gate. He was ostracized, cursed, disowned, went outside the gate and died for us. And if we find ourselves outside the gate, if we find ourselves in that spot where we feel like we're as good as dead, the Lord comes to us and can come to us and heal us and do something for us that no one else can do. And the marvelous thing is, it's, it's a, when we think about the laws concerning cleanliness, ritual cleanliness in Israel, if a person was to touch a leper, he would become what? Unclean. But in this case, the process is reversed. He touches the leper and makes the leper clean. And that's what the Lord can do for you and what the Lord can do for me. We just need to ask. We just need to ask. We don't know what the Lord has in store for us. There are certain things that just we're not given insight to. The Lord has his plans. We make our plans, but the Lord, his plan is the plan that will prevail. We need to be on the same page with him. We need to be on uh, his agenda and not look for him to serve ours. The Lord isn't our errand boy. In fact, it works the other way around. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that you'll help us to hold on to the things that have been revealed to us, those things in Scripture that are clear. Episodes like this particular one where we see uh, a leper healed because of mercy. Lord, we can hold on to that and believe and come to you ourselves and ask you to address our needs. We pray, Lord, that when it comes to matters that we can't know about, that we'll simply trust you, knowing that the Lord of the, of the earth, the creator and the redeemer, the sustainer of all things will do what's right. And I say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.